Revelation 8 contains the seventh seal, the final seal. The prayers of the saints with incense offered up by a mediator and the first four trumpets. Here now the reading of God's inspired word, profitable for us, Revelation 8. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, and filled it with fire of the altar, and cast it into the earth. And there were voices, and thunderings, and lightnings, and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters, because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. Thus far the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, Revelation chapter 8. Quite a passage in the word of God here. Now, uh, in God's word, we have the sealing that happened, the seven seals that God brought forth one by one, slowly unfolding his decree. Here we have the seventh seal opened. Verse 1 tells us, when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. Here he is the lamb. Remember, he was found worthy in chapter 5, we saw, to open the seals, to look upon the book, 
and to unfold what the Lord was doing. And when he opened this seventh seal, there was silence, it says, in heaven. Now, some take this for the silence that would occur during the priestly intercession. You remember when John's father, Zechariah, was in interceding and offering prayers, what were the people doing? They were out praying. They were silent. They were waiting for him to come forth. But most take this silence to refer again to a still from the times of persecution. Now, remember the earlier seals, there was the triumphing of the gospel with the white horse. Then there followed fire and sword on the red horse. Then there followed death and starvation with the black horse. Then there followed this elongated sense of death that went forth on the pale horse and hell followed with him. So now after this, we had the scene of the martyrs covered by the altar. We had the sealing in chapter 7 of those servants of God, the 144,000. We have now the seventh seal being opened and silence. Most take this to refer to the days of Constantine, a time in which the fierceness and blood of persecution, the languor of death, and the destruction of the people of God finally comes to an end, but not nearly long enough. An hour would be sufficient, but here we have what? Half an hour. It's cut off too short. It's not given the full duration, a quick time passing. Judgment is stilled for a brief time, nearly half an hour. I note then that times of peace and quiet are short and are often cut off before they're complete. Gone in a moment. Seems you had peace and now it's gone. God tells us to redeem the time. Why? For the days are evil. And when we have times of peace, there are certain duties required of us. We're to buy up greedily that time. That's what it means to redeem the time. We know that this won't last forever. James Durham in his lectures on Revelation says, The church's outward peace is not long. She hath but a short time of it, half an hour's silence only. The church story, scripture, and experience prove this. Therefore, folks would not promise to themselves nor expect long peace. Two, they would improve the little time they have frugally and not misspend it. So he's encouraging us, don't misspend your time. Can you give me that line? Use the time well of peace that God gives to you. Now, if you have an outline of the book of Revelation, You'll notice here they're on the table if you'd like to go get one. You'll see there that we're now in this second vision's conclusion in verse 1. God is executing the third part of the unfolding of his decree. That brings us to the third vision in chapter 8, verse 2, through chapter 11, verse 19. Now, this is the third vision. The first is of Jesus Christ at the beginning. The second is of the throne room. The third is of the unfolding of these seals. Now, this second general prophecy comes forth and shows us the trumpets. And also, you'll notice, if you look at the first part, where do we see God? We see him on his throne. Where do we see the lamb? Also on the throne. We have the royal uh, aspect of Christ's dominion. In fact, when he's told to, that he is the worthy lamb, the first thing he's called is what? 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the prince of the kings of the earth. He is pictured to us as the king ruling and reigning over his kingdom. Now, what is the Lord Jesus Christ? Look there at verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar having what? A diadem sitting on a throne. Is this a king who's ruling and reigning over his kingdom? No. He is a priest. He has a golden censer. In fact, standing is the word in Hebrew for a priest. Kohen means he who stands. The priests would stand. What would the kings do? They would sit upon a throne. The priest would stand and minister to the Lord. And so here, he, what is he doing? He's standing. And he has what? A golden censer where incense would be burnt. A little bowl on, on top of a stick. And they would burn the incense inside of that bowl. So notice here. The golden censer of the Pontifex Maximus. The great high priest. He represents the body of his church. And so what does he do? He offers up their prayers. In fact, he takes, it says, their prayers, and he adds incense to their prayers to make them acceptable and pleasing as they rise up to God himself. He is the high priest. The lesser priests, that is his people, they also have golden vials. We saw in chapter 5, verse 8. But he is the priest of priests. His people are a kingdom of priests. He is the great king and the great high priest. There was given unto him, in verse 3, much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints. Notice, the prayers of the saints are not the incense. The prayers of the saints are that with which he offers much incense. Why? Why does Jesus need to add to what he is offering from the saints? Ephesians 5.2 tell us that Christ's sacrifice is a pleasing aroma. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, tells us that we are a royal priesthood who offer up sacrifices of praise to God. How? By Jesus Christ, made acceptable through his priesthood. We cannot pray and have God hear us without Christ interceding, at least if we'd like God to be pleased with our prayers if we'd like him to accept them in love and in grace, if we'd like him to thunder against us and destroy us, sure, we can offer prayers to God directly. But here, the prayers of God's people are offered up by Jesus Christ. Our worship, then, is made acceptable only by Jesus' sacrifice, only by his merits, only by his mediation. If we think, well, I'm good enough... Jesus will accept me. God will accept me. Well, I have these other mediators who will make my prayers acceptable to take them to Jesus. Or if we think, I'll be a sweet savor to God by my good intentions. I don't need Jesus to make my prayers acceptable. God rejects such prayers. That is a vain and false religion. But notice verse 4. The smoke of the incense. Now that is what Jesus added to the prayers, the smoke of the incense, which came up with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Now think back to the tabernacle and to the temple. Where was the altar of incense? Well, it was right outside of what? The Holy of Holies. 
And who sat on the Holy of Holies? God did. The Ark of the Testament. There he sat and was enthroned as king on the mercy seat. So here, lower than the Ark, is this little table of gold where incense rises up to the mercy seat, to the Holy of Holies. Now I want you to look at the outline that I've provided for you just to show some parallels. Look at the second vision and look at the third vision. You'll notice as you look at the second vision, there is a preface to all the prophecies in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then note the first general prophecy, chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 1. What do you see? Chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, we have a preparation. God is preparing for this first general prophecy. Then what do you see? An execution, part one, seals one through four. Then what? A second part of the execution of those decrees, seals five and six. Then what? Consolation to the people of God in chapter seven, verses one through 17. That consolation speaks of God's elect, the judgment being stayed until the full number of the elect are sealed in their foreheads. We have the sealing of ideal Israel in verses four through eight of chapter seven. Then the innumerable sealed elect in verses 9 through 17. Then what follows is 8-1, the seventh seal. Now look at the third vision. Chapter 8, verses 2 through 6, we have the preparations for the second prophecy. Seven angels and trumpets, the intercessor angel, the prayers of the saints and the execution of their requests. Then notice the execution of the second general prophecy. What do we have? Part 1, trumpets 1 through 4 earthly judgments and curses to warn. Chapter 8, verse 13 through chapter 9, verse 22, the second part of the execution, trumpets 5 through 6, also called the first and second woes. And what do we have there? Do we have earthly judgments any longer? No, we have infernal judgments from the bottomless pit, from the smoke rising up out of hell, in other words, and unrepentant men. Then what do we have? Chapter 10, verse 1, verses 11 through, or excuse me, through chapter 11, verse 13, we have consolation yet again. Then finally, in chapter 11, verses 14 through 19, we see the third part of the execution of God's decree with the trumpets. Trumpet number seven, woe number three, the Lord Jesus Christ begins to reign in his kingdom, the Father and the Son ruling and reigning. Now, do you notice the parallel structure? Execution of four seals in chapter 5, or excuse me, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. The blowing of four trumpets, chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. Then what? Then we have a twofold woe for the trumpets, and we have the two other seals, 5 and 6, in the execution of the scroll. Then we have a period of consolation and explanation for the people of God, followed by the final. In other words, these are parallel the way that they're developed. They're giving us a view into God's activity, first from the perspective of Christ as the king and the early period of the church, now of Christ as the priest in the second part and the second unfolding or second age. With that aside, look there at verse 5. Our Lord, the angel, takes the censer, he fills it with fire of the altar. 
In Leviticus 16, we see the same thing. When they would offer incense, they would go to the altar of burnt offering. The sacrifice had been burnt. They would take the coals from under and they would put it on with the incense and the incense would burn and the smoke would rise up. That's what it's talking about. He takes those prayers and that sacrifice that he has offered and he casts it down upon the earth. The prayers of God's people move God to wrath as prayers of imprecation, both by the saints themselves and by Christ the mediator adding his incense to their prayers, those are cast down upon the earth to accomplish this glorious purpose. Verse 5 tells us, after the casting of these things to the earth, there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. If you read Exodus 20, do you remember what happened after God gave the law? Thunderings, lightnings, earthquakes, the voice of words. Isaiah 26 has much the same. Now, when we pray to God, there are many things that we are directed to pray concerning, but there are some things that modern Christians believe are off limits. In fact, modern Christians often look at the Old Testament and they look at the book of Psalms and they say, that's not really Christian to pray that way. I shouldn't pray for God to destroy the wicked because Jesus said to love your enemies. So those are opposites, right? Wrong. David loved his enemy Saul and did good to him. But guess what he prayed to God about Saul? That God would break his teeth in his mouth, that he would make his children fatherless, that he would destroy and wipe him out. He prays this in the Psalter. And we are taught to sing and to pray likewise. Our piety must be informed rather than by nice ideas, by the Bible itself. What do the saints pray for? Look, we saw it with the saints under the altar who were martyred, didn't we? What did they pray for? How long, O Lord, just and true, dost thou not avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? You know what that is? That's an imprecatory prayer. That's asking God to punish our adversaries and his adversaries. And notice, with the prayers of the saints, with the incense offered by Jesus, cast down onto the earth, what follows? Kittens, puppies, beautiful flowers, peace, love, and granola. Is that what follows? No. Judgment follows. Let us learn to pray as scripture directs, not by a preconceived notion from pious ideas whereby we twist the scripture, by our own self-will corrupting the scripture, or by the idolatry of good intentions and nice ideas. We note in verse 6, the angels ready to do God's will. Then we have the second general prophecy, its execution and the consolations of it from chapter 8, verse 7 through chapter 11, verse 19. Chapter 8 here, verses 7 through 12, we have the first four of the seven trumpets sounded earthly judgments. Verse 7 tells us that the first angel sounded, and what happens? Hail and fire. Now, this is subsequent again to the sixth seal. We know this how. It's not a repetition. Because in the sixth seal, in the prior chapters, in chapter 6 and 7, what did we see? The execution of the seals, and then what? Then we had a stay of judgment. The four angels on the four corners of the earth were told what? Don't let the winds go. 
Don't bring destruction. Don't bring damage. Don't bring judgment upon the earth. Why? Because there must be this sealing that takes place first. Now what do we have? Judgments on the earth. Hail and fire coming down. God is no longer restraining judgment through Christ's mediation as chapter 7. Now the trumpets of judgment follow the seals. I say this merely because some people believe, and they're good and godly men, but they believe that the seals are nothing more, nothing less, and nothing other than the trumpets. They're just different perspectives on the same set of events. That's not true. In the seals, there is a stopping of judgment. In the trumpets, what is there? Is there judgment stopping and Christ says, don't judge? No. He throws down the coals to the earth so that judgment most certainly follows. So this is a different tenor. This is a different age. This is a different period, in other words, of history. As we saw, things that then were, that were shortly to come to pass, and things that were to come hereafter. These are the ages hereafter. So, fire and hail. Notice also, mingled with blood. Earthly plagues from the wickedness of worldly men. Again, remember the half hour of silence some, I believe, rightly interpret this of the period, the brief period of rest under Constantine. Well, what followed that? Troubles, troubles, and more troubles. Sorcerers, pagans, heretics, anti-Christian powers ascending to the throne of iniquity, plagues and curses spreading upon the known world. The Westminster annotations say, what the hail did not beat down, the fire burnt up. And what the fire left, the blood corrupted. Some interpret this of the bitter contentions of the church after the Nicene Council. Others of the Arian heresy and persecutions following it. Others of the invasion of the Roman Empire after it was turned Christian by the Goths and Vandals. For by such signs war is signified. So we would date this likely around 395 A.D. Here begin the troubles of the church. And if you've ever read the history of the church, which I highly commend to you, you will realize that things weren't smooth sailing. How did we get our Trinitarian orthodoxy? Everybody sat down and everybody agreed and we all recited the Nicene Creed and we went home, right? Wrong. There was first a creed drawn up that was insufficient that didn't address the issue of whether Christ was of a like substance with the Father or of the same substance with the Father, and there were bitter contentions over this. Then there were those who rose up and said, well, we affirm everything about Christ, that he is the same substance with the Father, but we think that he actually has uh, two persons going on here. So there's a human person and there's a divine person. They make images of Jesus because it's just the human nature. They're saying he's just a human person. He's not a divine person that has united to a human nature. No. So there were heretics that sprung up there. Then there was the Pelagian heresy that rose up. Well, man is saved partially by grace, but mostly by what he does and his good deeds. Heresy after heresy, invasion after invasion, trouble after trouble. The third part of trees was burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. What do the trees do? They rule. They provide shade. They might provide fruit. They might provide nuts. 
They give and they nourish life and they protect the green grass. The grass is under the trees. It is subordinated, you might say, to the trees. So the rulers of the church, in other words, and the people of the church, what happens to them by these dreaded judgments? A third part of the teachers of the church burnt up. All the people of the church burnt with fire. Now, a third in the Bible, especially in apocalyptic literature, isn't all the way to half, but it's a substantial sum, isn't it? A third, a substantial sum of the teachers of the church fell from their fruitfulness, from their protection, from their superiority. Then what do we have? The second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire. Now, this, this is very interesting. It's cast into the sea, and some of the fathers of the church identified this threat with Pelagius himself. His name means he who dwells in the sea, Morgan or Pelagius, the man of the sea. This great exaltation of man burning out with blasphemies and notions of man's native goodness thrown by Augustine into the sea with the power of God's word. In any case, this mountain comes forth in pride and arrogance and tyranny cast into the sea. Where is the sea, the instability, the wickedness of man, muck and filth thrown up by the waves of the sea? It's unstable, it's unsound. And those within the sea, they had life at one time in this wicked world and they're drawn aside and destroyed by the falsehood of these teachers. I note then that false doctrines bring death and destruction. God calls us, as he called in the epistles to the seven churches, hold fast to the word of God. Keep with the wholesome waters of life. Stay in the ark of Christ. Do not be moved from God's heavenly mountain. Then the third angel sounded, verse 10, and there fell a great star from heaven. Now recall from chapter 1, verse 20, what were the stars? Do you recall? Were they heavenly beings, spirits? No, they weren't. They were the ministers and teachers of the church. The candlesticks stood, seven in number, and Christ stood among them, and he held the stars in the palm of his hand. And those stars were the angels that he wrote the messages to each church through that star. What is this glorious star? Some obscure monk somewhere? No. He is a public and noted teacher in the church, exalted in his status, as was Judas Iscariot. And this teacher in the church, what will he do? Fall down from heaven to the earth. He will not concern himself with the heavenly doctrine revealed in scripture. What will he concern himself? Groveling in the muck with the beasts and with the dragon. His name is called Wormwood, this famous teacher, this ecclesiastical ruler, he infects the waters of life. It fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. That's where you get your drinking water. That's where you get nourishment unto eternal life. What is he doing? He's fouling up the waters of life. His name is Wormwood. Absinthos. We have a beverage called absinthe named after Wormwood. Freiburg says it is a bitter, dark green oil 
made from certain strong-smelling plants with white or yellow flowers, alcoholic in effect, called wormwood from its use as a medicine to kill intestinal worms. Can you imagine taking a dewormer as your ordinary beverage? You know how much dewormer people take? About this much and they're good. What if you took a whole glass of wormwood and you said, now I'm gonna drink this as my daily diet. Do you think you would live long? No, you would not. The waters of life became embittered. The waters of life, rather than having a small part of wormwood in your life, it is the whole thing to you. A third part of the waters became wormwood and many men died of the waters. Not an occasional tonic, but your ordinary fare for drinking. Truths that might have occasional or just a slight relation to scripture are turned into a distorted message that fouls the message of the gospel, pushes aside the truth that is central and at the front of scripture and that truth is no longer there. It is fouled by wormwood. The means of grace corrupted and embittered by this great ecclesiastical teacher fallen down to grovel upon the earth. Reputed as a high and gracious one, noted for his gifts and parts, fallen to the earth. I note then that truths must be held as they are taught in Scripture, in Scripture proportions. Truths must be held as they are taught in Scripture, in Scripture proportions. There is a place for dewormer. It is not for your daily bread. It is not for your daily drink. There is a place for certain truths. But if we press them too far and we make them into the main point of the Bible, as God does not do, wormwood, bitterness, the waters of life will disappear. Let us hold fast to the truth of Scripture in proportion as God gives it, as he meets it out to us in his sacred word. Let us beware of those who are esteemed as of great learning or great knowledge or great parts or great esteem within the government of the church, lest they befoul the waters of life with the wormwood of human desire and invention. Then we have the fourth angel in verse 12. The angel sounds in the third part of the sun was smitten, the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. What does the sun do as respects the moon and the stars? Do we know? The sun gives the greater light. The reflected light is by those others. The sun is the great original. And what is the moon? Again, these things are symbolic. These things represent other things. Christ is the son of righteousness. His word is as a light that shineth in a dark place. The secondary or borrowed light is the spouse. Did you know that the woman is the image and glory of the man as the moon is the image and glory of the sun, the one reflected by the other? Here the church is Christ's spouse, called fair as a moon in Song of Solomon chapter 6, reflecting the glory of her Savior. What happens to her when the light of Christ's word is befouled and darkened by the superstitions of men? Does she reflect his glory? 
What of the teachers of the church, the stars who are supposed to shine the light of the gospel to the ends of the earth? Didn't God say, ye are the light of the world to his apostles? Didn't Paul say that God has set us to be a light to the Gentiles? Yes, he did. That's what they said. They are to be like stars shining to guide people to everlasting life. Now they're obscured. Now they're darkened. Now they're covered. The light of the law to direct, the means of grace to convey the truth, the lawful worship and government of the church corrupted by the darkness of superstition and of error. Then in verse 13, we have again an interlude, a stopping of the wheels of the trumpets coming back to a reminder that we're not done yet. We're over halfway, but not quite done. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. Here we have our first four of the seven divided from the next two, which will again be divided from the final of the seven. As with the seals broken by the Lamb, so likewise here. Now, most Reformed commentators are of the opinion that these preparation for woes introduces a darkness, a lawless and superstitious age ending around the time of Gregory I. So then the next woes, the first two and three, they come after Gregory's age. The pagan and Christian Rome has been overthrown and corrupted. The popes have begun their ascent unto the throne of iniquity and anti-Christianism. In fact, Bishop Gregory I of Rome, when one of the Eastern bishops, I think it was John III of Constantinople, when he claimed that he wanted to be the universal bishop of the church and not just have jurisdiction over Constantinople and the outlying areas, do you know what Gregory I said to him? He said, if you want universal jurisdiction in the church, you are the forerunner of the Antichrist. Hmm, think about that. What then did the popes claim to be, as we'll see in chapter 9? They claimed to be the vicar of Christ, God walking on the earth, the representative of Christ. Christ is gone. I'm here. You listen to me. And I am the bishop of who? The whole Catholic Church. And so what was he? The Antichrist, not the forerunner anymore, the Antichrist himself, Wormwood enabling him, as we'll see in chapter 9, God willing, this evening. And thus far, the exposition of the word of Almighty God from Revelation chapter 8.